Welcome to Playback by Playlister, the bi-weekly podcast where you can stay current on technology and leadership ideas that impact you. Here's today's host and Playlister CEO, Grant Glass. All right. Hey, everybody. We're joined here today by Dr. Kevin Berghopes. Uh, he's got a cool story. We're really excited to have him on the show today. Uh, this man is uh, maybe one of the leading disruptors and thinkers and businessmen in the whole state of Indiana when it comes to education. So I'm really excited to have him on the show. And I'm going to do himself a disservice by trying to talk about all the amazing things that he is doing right now. So. Um, Kevin, can you maybe start us off, kick us off, tell us a little bit about your background, your personal mission, and your organizations? I should say plural, organizations. <laughs> yeah, we got a group of all working together. So uh, it's really great to be with you, Grant. Thank you for the kind words. We're, we're really trying to work through how do we have a big enough vision for what the impact that we need to have in our community and our society. So there are several businesses that are all now working together that I have the privilege of, of being co-owner with. Uh, it starts with the background, which is, you know, I, I spent the better part of my 20s traveling the country and uh, instead of taking a financial analyst position when I was 21, um, sort of momentarily lost my mind in regards to social justice and, and uh, went out and started teaching in low-resourced areas across the country and haven't looked back since. Um, I started in North Carolina, and I spent time in, in uh, Chicago and Texas and other places and, and uh, basically went to areas that had the most need and, uh, and tried to learn a lot about what I didn't know about, but also learn about the education system in, in total. And uh, the takeaways were, were pretty simple. One is that I grew up in a way that I thought was low-resourced, and uh, I actually didn't have the words for what that really meant until I saw it. Uh, our community is is full of these sorts of inequities. And um, even a kid that grew up the way that I did, um, I had no clue. And then also that there's a workforce issue in education and, uh, and an understanding. It's not that we don't have great people in it, because we do. We have fantastic teachers uh, and human beings that I would love to spend time with and would trust my own children with. But they don't stay. And uh, they don't stay for reasons that I think we can do something about, which is the, the way the system is created is, is systematically displacing them and, and actually robbing them of the richness of what they can provide young people. Uh, and so we, we started playing with these models um, with uh, what is now called Crossroads Education, which is a nonprofit uh, 501c3 company. And this model that we created was based on the idea that the workforce of the future in education has to be scalable. Uh, has to be affordable and it has to be easy to train and find, and uh, those things sound complicated until you think about the idea that students are in every one of our schools. Um, they would take a hundred dollars a week, um, no questions asked. Where you and I probably would uh, move on pretty quickly from that type of pay, and uh, they're in every school by law, which is a great workforce uh, to have access to. And what we got to do is flip our presentation and thought about what education is. It's not something being done under these young kids uh, and young people and, and adults, for that matter, for the first 13 to 15 years of their lives or 18 years of their lives. Um, 
it's something that they can be a part of. And if we use public dollars in a slightly nuanced way, we can hire 25 students and a professional to run these programs instead of just one professional or one and a half professionals. And now you're starting to change the whole idea of what affordability is in the ed space if you think of students as part of that teaching ecosystem. Uh, so we built the first model uh, in 2012, and it's called a learning commons. And a learning commons is a collaborative space that you know these um, these students get a chance to to actually contribute to the teaching ecosystem in, in interesting ways. We build it at the university first for mathematics, and then now it's progressed into other content domains. Uh, and then through that process, we started to build other businesses that help with that strategy. So we have a software. Uh, as service company Crossroads Tech that supplies the tech enabled portion of the Learning Commons. Uh, we have EduSource, which is a, an apprenticeship for software development and data scientists uh, that finishes off that career aspect of the cradle to career that we're trying to impact. Uh, we have Crossroads Realty Group, which is building what we call Community Commons, which are these new mixed use facilities for learning. Um, and um, the idea of what a school is or what a place of worship is and how it could be augmented with other mixed uses in that community and how it can drive impact for some of the food deserts, economic deserts, education deserts, faith deserts, as you uh, would call them. Um, all of those work together in a collective with some, some big uh, partners in, in, uh, across the country to, to do this big vision, which is we think the paradigm needs to shift. Um, we think we have to think big enough to make it happen. And then we, uh, we need to ask the question every day is uh, if, you know, if we're not going to do it, who is? And uh, if it needs to get done, why not us? Yeah. And for our listeners, though, I've actually been in one of the learning commons uh, that Kevin talked about. And if somebody wants to visualize this, I'm going to do my best to describe it. Uh, because most people listening to the show have been to an Apple store. And one of the great things that Apple retail has done in the past few years is they really tried to make, in essence, a learning commons. So they have classes in the middle of their store where there's a giant interactive display. There's a bunch of places to sit. Uh, it's cutting-edge technology. And then they, they teach through a group setting where the, the students are comfortable. Um, there's big screens everywhere that they can interact with. And you see Apple doing this and pushing it on the retail stores. And this is what Kevin's trying to uh, implant in every school because generation... The new generation of students are, are used to learning in this way. I think the uh, the old way of sitting in rows in a classroom and looking at a chalkboard is still being utilized today, and it is horribly antiquated. And the learning column, uh, the the learning con commons that Kevin has is is amazing. Now, I've taken the liberty to kind of describe it myself, but maybe you can add a little flavor to that, Kevin, so our listeners can kind of visualize what that is. So we're, you know, at our core, we're, we are designers and developers. And so we've worked from this user experience paradigm that we've learned about over the last 25, 30 years is that you can't just make a tech uh, and a web-based software or anything that doesn't take the user into account. And then I started to apply that to other facets of how we were working and started asking questions like, why don't we take user experience into account in education? Why don't we think about how a space looks and feels and makes somebody feel about themselves, we can take lessons from retail about what human beings like and want to experience. And then we can augment it in one of the purest things that humans are trying to do, which is to learn and grow and develop. 
if we provide really quality spaces that look good, feel good, and, and give you access to multiple surfaces of collaboration, you want to be there. If you want to be there, you're more motivated to learn. And, and we know now from years of experience that if we really do think about that user experience in ed, when we create these collaborative spaces that make people feel more human and more um, you know, efficacy about themselves and about the process, then from there, the, the driving of uh, learning almost takes care of itself. So you're right. Yeah, right. the way Apple does things when you when you get a product in the mail and how well the packaging is designed and how it makes you feel and think, that's the sort of thing that we want to apply very strategically to the ed space. We want people to come into a space like this and go, "Yeah, I, I could hang out," and then we want them to work there. We want them to be around it and, and understand that you know, cutting edge technology like 65 inch flat screens that you can write on and interface with and share between devices. These are the things that should be in our classrooms. The idea of a, a one-to-many distribution model isn't isn't where we need to head or really ever really worked. Um, it's just what we thought we had to do, right? You have to have that learned other. And then they impart knowledge on the rest of the group. Well, we know from 150 years of experience that doesn't work. Now we have Google and other technology that can interface in a very new and interesting way. Uh, and we actually think uh, we can drive down the cost of those learning spaces significantly because we're thinking about how to interface between multiple devices, surfaces, and then that workforce of young people um, to substructure all of that. And now we've got something that we know works and we know that it um, actually builds in a much, much more, uh, you know, this collaborative economy that we have where people are sharing rides and homes and everything else. So why aren't we doing that in the ed space? Uh, and we want to drive that that paradigm shift. Yeah, and this is really interesting. I've had an opportunity to talk to you, Kevin, about this, where uh, if you look at cl- classrooms today in a lot of schools and then in a lot of churches as well, they're still traditional in a sense, um, where the rooms are configured in a way that you would go back in a time machine and be plopped in 1970 and nothing really would have changed from 1970 until now. But you go into retail areas um, like the Apple Store, like Starbucks, and there's a sense of community in there. And they use interactive elements of technology in order for the consumer to feel like they're at home. And they've, they've, why not apply that to the classroom? And, and why not apply that to a grander sense, your building where your community lives? And if you're able to do that, then folks just want to come there. They want to hang out a little bit more. Now, as you've begun to, let's say, communicate this idea to school leaders, uh, what has that feedback been like? Because you're really uh, challenging the status quo. Have they been receptive to that message? Have they kind of uh, asked questions? Like, What, what generally is the, the feedback that you get from leaders once you present them with the idea of the learning commons and how to transform their building and thinking for the 21st century? Yeah, I, I think this is typical. So there's there's theories of scientific uh, evolution where you have a band of something, a system that's been created, and then people are profiting from that system. We've wrapped these bands around it, and, and people's programmings and businesses and their way of life are dependent upon that system staying the same. And we see this in all systems that human beings have created, um, is that they are large and sometimes we become subservient to them because we don't think through the idea of questioning whether or not it's the best way to operate uh, with new and newer tools that are becoming available. So 
with that being said, the, the reaction is typically once you see uh, an eight-year-old teaching a five-year-old at school and being incentivized in certain ways, once you see a high school kid that can bring home $100 to their family and impact the family income uh, by increasing it by almost 25%, once you see numbers like um, I can employ 150 undergraduates and subsidize their entire tuition for less cost than five faculty members, once you see those things, you start to see the economic model and you see that it is not only a, a better user experience that has better learning outcomes, but you see the, the benefits uh, alongside it. With that being said, uh, as soon as you challenge anything that's status quo, there will be a certain subset of people that uh, try to uh, do all sorts of things to prevent it uh, from disrupting that, that system or that industry. Uh, I, I think that's unavoidable anytime that you think innovatively in any environment, be it public, private, government, whatever, if you've got a model that could really disrupt the way that people have traditionally thought something should work, even though they haven't questioned its purpose or or viability, uh, you're going to either be loved or most likely hated, and there's really no in-between. And I think as we've done this over the last seven or eight years, I've become more comfortable uh, with understanding that that's what's going to happen, uh, because originally I was sort of floored that people would be upset that we were helping all of these kids and that we had created this new program. And then I, I realized that it was a threat uh, to how they were operating, be it not that I'm a threatening person, but I've created uh, with my teams a model that significantly impacts the way things are currently working. And uh, I mean, that's why we built them. Right? Now, let's talk about that. Let's pull on a thread here. The kids, though. I feel like Generation Y is going to love what you're presenting to them. Hey, um, you're really good at what you do. Now, I want you to teach in this environment that I've created for you. That seems like it really resonates with the kids. And that's where the tip of the spear is really where you can inception people to the way you're thinking. Has that been the I, well, I kind of, I'm setting you up here. I know that's what the kids are thinking. <laughs> yeah, that was a softball. Uh, yeah. so they, they don't, I have never run into a student that's been a part of our ecosystem that didn't get it within the first five minutes that they walked in. Right. The understanding is this is totally different. Uh, they make me feel good. They don't tell me that when I have questions that that's a problem. We don't believe in saying things like, well, I have a, a, a PhD, so I know a lot. I know everything. Well, that's, that's just not true. Um, the, the leveling of the playing field and in terms of the cultural approach of the space provides this equity of access that allows people to, in, in very authentic ways, feel good when they are struggling. And if you can create an environment like that, that is completely different than the sort of paternal, strange system that we've created where the lecturer is the keeper of all knowledge. And, and if you can't keep up with learning 500 years of mathematics twice a week for 16 weeks, there's something wrong with you. I, that's just not true. It never has been. But we have, have a whole section of our society, uh, especially in the U.S. Roughly one in three people in the U.S. have math anxiety. And that's because we've taught this system in such a way um, that it's, it's almost like some sort of measurement of intellect. So the reality is we wouldn't do that for you know, building sandcastles. So why do we do that with something like mathematics or other concept domains that are highly technical like data and, and software development? It's, it's because we've 
learned that it's a protective mechanism for the current system, in our opinion. Uh, if you think that you have to have a PhD or a, a master's degree person in the room to learn something highly technical, then that system would persist and then we have, we have these jobs. We don't think that's true. We think smart people sitting at a table could learn just about anything with access to multiple surfaces and, and uh, interfacing with technology and all the resources that are inherently on the internet. Uh, we think that builds a better, better problem solver, a, a more learned, motivated individual, and somebody that's naturally curious. That's who we want to hire, right, for our businesses, mm-hmm. for others. Uh, it's just a better model. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, well, kids, it's, kids love it. They, they definitely don't fight me on it. Well, the, kid, like the kids' reaction to the environment is where I think this wins. And I kind of put it into a church setting where volunteers are the lifeblood of a church. And if you can get the kids excited and going, then the parents are going, then the parents are wanting to volunteer, and then the kids are wanting to volunteer. That all starts with the actual physical environment that you place them in for the learning opportunity. So you have to be very conscious of what these generation Y and then uh, the what they're thinking and what they want. Uh, and all the millennials, they're programmed to, to want and understand a certain social connection. And if you can do that through putting them in an environment where it's just fueled to happen, uh, and that's really where Kevin and what he's doing uh, with the learning co- uh, commons is, I, I think, hitting a home run. Now, Kevin, if we were to place you into the DeLorean, right, with uh, Doc Brown here, and we went forward three years. And in three years, you step out of the DeLorean and you go right into a building how you envision it. So what does a school in Kevin's mind look like when you jump out of the DeLorean and walk inside? Let's close our eyes. And, and Kevin, you kind of tell us what you see when you walk into a brand new building that's optimized for the 21st century and a learning experience in that. So you'd see a mixed-use building. Uh, if this is a, a, a place of faith or an education facility like a, a traditional K-12 school or a higher ed institution, first of all, you don't build them out in the middle of nowhere in a megaplex. You build them into the heart of, of a density area, be it rural or urban, and you go up instead of out. You build the building based on the need for high-speed internet to be distributed throughout in a mesh network. You're not going to run a bunch of fiber. We don't need that anymore. Um, the classrooms are built around breakout areas, which is collaboration spaces. So every content domain would have a learning commons, and then they would have breakout spaces around it for the, the individualized education. The key is that you are going to employ a, a vast subset of the students that go to that uh, education facility. You're going to employ them through volunteerism, through actually paying them, which is what we want to do uh, at scale. Uh, you're going to train them. You're going to provide them with the opportunity to learn all the intangibles of workforce development and empathy and, and you know, all the other things that go along with thinking of yourself as an educator and that your community is as important as yourself uh, and how to contribute to that. And then the commonplace understanding of that facility is that it's mixed use, which means you have other things going on. So you have a grocery store and a bank and, uh, you know, restaurants and a health clinic and a dentist, these sorts of things that will drive impact for the community in very unique ways. Another reason you have a mixed-use facility is because if the school grows or shrinks, you need to be able to economize that. 
Uh, if a school goes from 4,000 students to 1,200 students, you don't want to have a single-purpose building that you can't reuse for other reasons, um, economically speaking. And frankly, we've built single-purpose entities for schools that basically look like jails for roughly 150 years because we haven't thought differently about what ed is in our culture and our uh, society. I think now with tech and how we are developing that, we should think very, very differently uh, about what that looks like and, and how the classroom breakout spaces interfaces with the collaborative spaces. Uh, what is happening there if there's a bunch of tutors and mentors and, and uh, you know, that, that uh, collaborative peer space, how does that interface with what's happening in the classroom to provide support for those classroom teachers? Um, you know, but take just a, a second break, go back to what you were talking about in, in places of faith and think through the idea of if you have somebody teach something, something, and it could be any, you know, from the Bible to the Quran or any teaching that you are trying to establish as part of a, of a place of faith. If you have young people trying to teach those to other young people, they're going to have to unpack them in very unique ways. And they're going to have to really understand them themselves and reflect and, and think through what message they're trying to convey. The act of teaching in its very essence is one of the greatest ways to learn anything. So that should be in our ecosystem of teaching where uh, we're doing that either in a place of faith or, or a building. So if I have that sort of perspective, to me, that means that a school should be much more about giving people the opportunity to educate each other and then learn from that process while lowering the ratio of sort of near peer and, and um, just beyond peer in terms of, of content and lowering that ratio with novices down to one to one, one to three, one to five. These are things where we know uh, if you can get that ratio accomplished, people are going to learn roughly a two standard deviations above the lecture approach. So that's why I would build and we are building. We're going to break ground on the first one here in Indianapolis um, this, at the end of this year is the idea of this mixed-use facility that could really drive a ton of impact for the community as that ecosystem approach where the rest of the community not only benefits by sending their children there, but they have the, the other amenities that are a part of that, that, uh, that building. Yeah, the mixed-use uh, like ecosystem of what you described. When I heard you first explain that to me when we met a couple of weeks ago, I thought... Uh, and this is a question I think that comes to mind for a lot of faith-based leaders is what place do I have in the 21st century? And you see the large facilities that churches have and why, and, and your vision of what a school could be immediately mapped to my vision of what the, a church could be like, uh, where you're, you're educating people, you're providing for people. That's what they do today. They, it needs to evolve to the actual details that Kevin is outlining. So I'm encouraging everybody that's listening to this, we're going to post the show notes uh, where to find more information about Kevin's doing so you can see what the learning commons look like, see what the buildings he's talking about look like. He's got them mapped out. They're beautiful. And I encourage everybody just to take a look at that and really challenge the status quo because this really resonates with uh, young people and then just, learning in general as Kevin's mapped out. So, uh, Kevin, that, uh, I, I could chat with you for a very long time about the future and what that holds, but I want to keep, uh, be respectful of your time and keep this close. So I'm going to follow up with my last question here. And this is a good one. Uh, 
Um, I'm a big reader. Uh, I actually am reading right now 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is a great book. Um, just a little plug there. <laughs> but I'm curious, what do you find yourself re- recommending the most to folks? Is there a book you always go back to that you recommend? Is there a favorite one you have? And please feel free to rattle off 10 or rattle off one. <laughs> I'm definitely going to pick up your number one. So what is it? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I do get this question asked uh, quite a bit. And I think I'm, I'm wired a bit differently than some folks. That might be obvious. Um, but what I find most drawn to now is that I would, I would read to enhance a particular skill set. So uh, I see, you know, we have some really interesting projects that are, that are, are machine learning based. And I, I take, you know, a particular, maybe a, a Scholarly Journal article that's, that was written about a different industry. And if you read about the feedback loops and the machine learning aspects of those things, um, I, I, I find myself where I, I think this, you know, dates back to the early PhD days where uh, you're reading 20 or 30 sort of books a week, right? Uh, which is slightly insane to some people. But <laughs> to me, the, the consumption of knowledge in regards to what we're trying to do, it feeds that passion. Like if we can continue to be that far ahead of thinking about how to do the things that we intend to do to, to drive social impact. So I, I would, if, I often give this, and it's not perfect as a response, but you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish with your life? That's the question that people should ask themselves. What are some resources that you can continue to sharpen your edges on to, to be able to accomplish those things? Is it, is it something that is business-related, uh, maybe not as fun? Is it something that you're really passionate about? Uh, could be as simple as you want to learn a different type of ethnic food that you could cook. These, these sorts of things I find myself drawn to. If I, if I had a very basic answer, I think everybody should go read uh, A Walk in the Woods. Um, it's, uh, Bill Bryson. It's, it's something that, uh, if you have a couple of days and you want to really laugh and enjoy something that is not technical and trying to learn about the next cutting edge, uh, interface of, of machine learning and, and people, uh, that's a, that's a great one. It's a one I always go back to if I want a couple of days of shutting my brain down. Uh, fortunately for our businesses and everything else, I don't get to do that much anymore. Um, but that, that'd be my response. Like what, what do you want to do uh, with yourself? What, what is something that you think may even be unattainable uh, with your current capabilities? And then start reading about it. And you're, you'll learn pretty quickly that, uh, you know, there's really not anything that's unattainable in terms of cognitive ability. It's just we have to be cool enough to work hard at it. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed when I walked into your office, you had a bookshelf there. And I, 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 I'm a, I always look at leadership books. Uh, and then life lesson books. And I saw a couple of good ones. I think you had Culture Code. Uh, that was on the bookshelf, as I recall. Um, has there been a... I mean, you as a leader of many, many people that follow your mission, is there a leadership book or a book of inspiration that you look to in that area that you think has been really helpful? I think they're all helpful. Uh, I think they all have to be categorized in particular ways of, of how you understand yourself and what your capacity is as a leader. Because, you know, the, the, the constant reflection that I've had is, is my ability to lead other people is somewhat uh, based on my, my dispositions and my presence. These are things that you may or may not have control over. Other things are, that I do have control over in terms of 
how well informed I am and how passionate I can communicate, how well and what kind of shared language I can use. Mm -hmm. Uh, These sorts of things all sort of come in from different directions. Um, Understanding that you do have the potential to uh, be a leader almost naturally uh, is something that I've wrestled with over the years because I found um, oftentimes that there is a, a very fine line there that if you are naturally looked to as a leader of, of other people or, or groups or teams that you're on, that uh, that power would allow you or that resource would allow you to not take the other sides of things seriously because it, it's natural. Uh, to me, it's you have to account if you have that natural ability, you should you should almost even more so uh, train yourself to understand other people and dispositions and profiles and learning, uh, you know, learning development, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so for me, that, that, that full picture of cognitive science, neuroscience, um, you know, the disposition of leadership, what it means to be in charge and the, the, the uh, inequities that you could potentially produce from that, um, all of those things blended together. There's not one that stands out to me. I think they're all pieces of a, of a puzzle we're trying to, to work towards. Yeah, I like that advice, play to your strength. Uh, I, I finished a book, The Inner Game of Golf. And there's a lot of, I mean, it's a golf advice book, but you could just easily eliminate golf and put life in its place. Yep. Uh, because one of the main parts of it is when you're on the course, play to your strengths, not to your weaknesses, right? So it's like you need to really educate yourself more on your strengths and play to your strengths when you're on the course. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that, that applies to non-golfers too. <laughs> so, yeah. It is a very good, it's a, it's a very good way of thinking. I think once you know your weaknesses, obviously playing to your strengths is important, but I was always bored in sports. If I, you know, stayed away from my weakness, I felt like I wasn't growing. And so I think there's a, a line there where you, you should continuously push yourself to get better at, at something that you're potentially not that great at, uh, even while you're having those successes. I think if you sort of just use your right arm and it's the only thing that's strong on you, that you're missing the point. Um, and, and those sorts of things to me are, are interesting on how we should continuously expose ourselves to some of the things that we're weaker at um, or um, need to improve on as part of the process of being successful because it's a long game if you do it that way. Uh, you know, if you're not a great off the tee, you, you, you don't quit driving. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe you swing a little uh, less hard. Well, that's a great point. I, that's one of the things I, I, at least I personally struggle with, uh, is understanding that I have to wear many hats and you're in the same boat as uh, a leader of several companies and knowing like I have to get better in certain areas and the, the painful process of being bad at something, but yet having to constantly go back to it is that pain is almost like the way you grow and get better. Uh, so it's always the, it's juxtaposition, like play to my strengths, but I need to get better with my weaknesses. And it, to me, where, where I found the struggle is then what type of time investment do you put into it? Um, where do I invest my time is the most important thing I, I typically think of on a daily basis. I'm sure you do too. Uh, when it goes, I, I'm going to kind of ask a bonus question here because I'm always curious with somebody who's a leader, has a bunch of companies, has a bunch of employees. Um, how do you think about managing your time? Is it something where... Like I've met leaders where the calendar is decked full and then it's blank or it's like, hey, I think of three main goals and I work towards those goals and think about do they apply to the goals? Like how do you 
look through your day, your week, your month through the lens of time? How do you manage it? I think that's a weakness of mine. So I, I have a disposition that if someone recommends that I meet someone else uh, after they meet me, my disposition is typically to to take that meeting, irregardless of the context and the reason. I've found a lot of benefit to that. Um, but as we've grown in complexity, uh, that means that my weeks have uh, more or less back-to-backs every day, all day. And I don't have necessarily some of the time that I need to build certain parts of, of the businesses and you know, some of the IP, some putting my hat on those things. I have a great team that I've hired uh, in the different lanes, uh, which is really important. But I think managing time is something that everybody has to, to wrestle with when you have chosen to be uh, you know, a leader or you've chosen to, to create your own businesses that are now you know, because of your hard work scaling and, uh, and growing in, in massive ways. So uh, yeah, I think that's something I'm constantly working on is do I, do I get that virtual assistant that helps me with scheduling because I don't want to spend three hours going back and forth with people on when we're going to meet uh, do I start to eliminate some of the, the meetings that I take with people with networking? I mean, if I had you know told uh, a, a, an example of a meeting like that, no, um, I wouldn't have met you. So these right. sort of things they they progress, and, and I think they drive a lot of value. It's just can you deal with uh, the level of, of busy, and are you you know sort of driven by that? Does it empower you, and does it fill you up? Or is it something that completely drains you and you lose your capacity to be uh, performing at a high level? I found that me being uh, busy in the ways that I am really empowers me. It, it energizes me. It keeps me sort of sharp and thinking about, okay, what's next and does this work and why? Um, so I think that's also a weakness because when I do get home, I've got kids that are uh, seven, four, and two and a wife that um, is you know, in charge of them and, and uh, homeschooling them every day. And, and do I flip that hat on as well as I could because of how busy I've made myself, you know, for the previous 12 to 15 hours? I don't have a good answer if I'm, if I'm good at that or not. Uh, I think it's, in, it's important for me to be good at it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to work towards that. Yeah, the uh, meeting with people is something I think a lot of people listening can struggle with. Uh, and I look at it as like a engineered serendipity. Uh, when you make an introduction to someone else, you're hoping that that conversation sparks and it just keeps on the domino effect. I mean, that's how I met you. And we're on this podcast and this podcast hopefully then leads to another introduction, another conversation and a potentially a learning commons or a brand new building somewhere that transforms the community. So it's that snowball effect, right? Um, so that's why I always encourage people to pay it forward, meet, talk with folks, and maybe you're just little instant of their reality and you changing it can make a, a, a significant difference. Uh, so good for you for you know not saying uh, saying yes, I should say, to, to meet folks and getting out there and, and talking to people about your vision of the future. I think it's very, very important. That's why we had you on the podcast today. So Kevin, thank you for your time so much. Appreciate it, brother. Uh, and then on the show notes, we'll have all the links to Kevin's information. I encourage everybody, again, take a look at what he's doing. Seeing's believing. These learning, learning commons and then the, his building of the future are, are sights to behold. So check it out. And thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, brother. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Grant. It's great to see you, buddy. All right. We'll see you. See you.
more ideas or to simply learn more about today's podcast, visit us online at www.playlister.app forward slash podcast. 